keep us awake a few more minutes and uh, even clapping. I like it. Um, before I begin my message this morning, I, there's something I need to make sure I clear up with you. I think there was a little confusion last time I preached. I think some of you kind of mixed up the difference between an illustration and an application. Um, an illustration is something that's given as a, as a quote, a, a story, a word picture to help, to help illustrate, to help explain a truth. Well, an application is is a recommended response to that truth. And I bring this up because last time I gave an illustration about how I broke my toe uh, and tried to illustrate a Greek word that was used. And uh, apparently some of you misunderstood that because I had several during the next couple of weeks come up and tell me how they broke their toe or stubbed it in the same manner. And, uh, you know, I just want to make sure you understand the difference. OK, that was an illustration. Um, I, I know you know the difference. I just thought it was funny how several people came up and similar or the same injury I had. And so this week, my commitment to you will be to try to steer my illustrations away from bodily injury. Uh, well, Jack's been preaching on prayer the last few weeks, some great messages uh, encouraging us in that direction. And prayer is such a, a vital aspect of our worship that we give to the Lord and What I wanted to do was this morning take a step back from that and just look at worship in general, worship of God overall. What is it? What is worship? Is it just relegated to the time that we sing? Is it uh, the time that we gather Sunday morning? Uh, Can somebody worship by themselves? Does, Does there need to be a sermon in order for worship to be taking place? What would show my worship? What would show your worship to be genuine, to be authentic? These questions, they're not peripheral, peripheral to the Christian life, but they're really vital to it. John, in chapter 4, uh, Jesus said, John 4, that the Father seeks true worshipers. He actually actively is looking for those offering Him genuine worship. It's a critical aspect of our lives. Is your worship authentic? Well, Frederick Douglass, a former slave and gifted writer and speaker, he published his autobiography in the mid-1840s. And his book became a popular expose of the horrors of slavery. In one portion of the book, he gave his impression of Christianity in the South at the time that he was living. Listen to what he says. Directly speaks to this issue of, of worship. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. I'm filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate their religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. The man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The man who robs me of my earnings at the end of the week meets me as a class leader on Sunday morning to show me the way of life and the path of salvation." He who proclaims it a religious duty to read the Bible denies me the right of learning to read the name of the God who made me. It's a pretty scathing response that Frederick Douglass gives of the kind of worship that he saw, the kind of worship of those who would attend church on Sunday morning, but then during the week commit vicious acts of atrocity. That serves as a vivid picture of hypocritical worship, very similar to what we're going to look at this morning in Isaiah 1. It's a worship which feigns love for God on Sunday, but then throughout the week shows only love for self and hatred of others. Now, before we dismiss Douglas's experiences, that was just a thing of the past and a much more violent time. What would someone say about you if they were to 
follow you around during the week, if they were to sit here with you Sunday morning and listen to the fervor and, and what you sing and the attentiveness of what you give and what you say to people here at church, and then to, they were to follow you around during the week, see what you saw, hear what you said, saw what you did, what would their response be? What would their report be? Well, I want you to turn to Isaiah 1 with me, because this morning we're going to look at three steps toward a life of authentic worship. We'll see in Isaiah 1, three steps toward a life of authentic worship. The book of Isaiah, it stands as really one of the great literary masterpieces of the Old Testament. It is filled with rich poetry, with vivid word pictures, with uh, many prophecies about the coming Savior and Messiah. And its message is one of God's holiness. Its message of the demands upon a people who would serve him as the Lord. However, the Israelites refused that service, refused to worship him in a manner in which he desired, but instead were unfaithful. And we see many examples of that throughout the Old Testament. And this is the issue that Isaiah takes up in the first chapter, in his sermon, which he preaches to the Israelites. Look with me at verse 2, which is where we'll start, Isaiah chapter 1. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. And what Isaiah is doing is he opens this message in chapter 1 with a courtroom scene. It's an emotionally charged courtroom scene. Judah is on the witness stand. And then in verse 2, the Lord is summoning heaven and earth to speak as witnesses against Judah for the acts that they've committed. The Lord stands here as plaintiff and judge. And as he summons heaven and earth, if you go back to Deuteronomy 30, uh, it mentions there specifically in a figurative way how heaven and earth were there at the ratification of the covenant. When the people said, God, we will follow these laws that you have given us. We will worship you in the way that you desire And now God calls upon heaven and earth to speak against what they have observed in his people Israel. And he delivers this accusation. The covenant they made after the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, they have forsaken. They have been unfaithful to it. God had treated them like sons. And he says here, you've abandoned me as your father. And look at God's response. We'll pick it up in verse 7. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation is overthrown by strangers. And the daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. And these words describe a time when some scholars think it may be that Isaiah delivered this sermon around the time when Assyria was ready to besiege Jerusalem in the time of Hezekiah. They had ransacked several of the towns around Jerusalem, and they were now on Israel's doorstep awaiting to pounce. We aren't sure, but in any event, verse 9 says that had the Lord not been gracious to the Israelites, they would have been wiped out completely, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And at this point, some of the people will be saying, hey, wait a minute. Why are you responding this way? Why are you treating us like this, Lord? We worship you in the manner which you've desired. We are continually coming to you offering sacrifice in the way you've told us to. Why are you responding in this way? How can you say we've forsaken you? We're committed to worshiping you just as you called us to. And we'll see that in the 
subsequent verses, verses 10 and following, they were indeed worshiping God in a manner in which he had prescribed, at least on the external way, in the verses to follow. They'd been consistently participating in worship in the very way God had wanted them to do it. But the problem is they had reduced that worship. They had reduced those external acts to a a form of religion without any inward motivation, without any genuine desire from the heart. And Isaiah's message in verses 10 through 18 is going to teach us, again, those three steps toward a life of authentic worship. And that first step that we see here in verses 10 through 15 is that you need to recognize God's attitude toward hypocritical worship. Recognize God's attitude toward hypocritical worship. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offering of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Here in verse 10, Isaiah compares the people to Sodom and Gomorrah, playing off of verse 9, two cities that God annihilated from the face of the earth. What, what has brought about such a harsh comparison? Why would God compare them in that way? Well, it's because of their worship. And we see here in these verses God's example of what his desire is when we would come to offer worship. Just how does he respond to hypocritical worship? Well, we see three responses in these verses. And the first response is that he was sickened by the worshippers' animal sacrifices. God begins his indictment of Israel there in verse 11 when he says, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? And the idea here is, why are you bringing them for? They, they mean nothing to me. And he then describes the many different animal sacrifices which he did tell them to bring in Exodus and Leviticus. But the issue wasn't that they were bringing wrong offerings. And the issue wasn't that they were only doing so once in a while. No, the the language here says they were bringing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice in the exact manner that was prescribed in the Torah. But God says this. He says, I've had enough. I'm full. I'm I'm satiated with them. It's kind of the idea. If you remember Violet and Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory, remember the big blueberry girl? I mean, that... That's really kind of the picture here. It's that girl, the Oompa Loompas, had to roll her off into another room so that she wouldn't explode before their eyes. They had to take care of a little problem there. Well, that, that's kind of the, the idea here that's being conveyed. God says, I'm full. I've had enough. Stop. Don't bring any more. Enough. In fact, he goes on in verse 12 to describe the, a picture of uh, the sacrifices coming into the temple where you'd have the, the, the worshiper coming in, bringing their sacrifice, and he describes that as a hooves and feet trampling my courts. It's kind of like he's, he's saying here, you know what? You're unwelcome here. You're a nuisance on my property, this trampling of your feet. Not only was he sickened by the animal sacrifices, a second response that we see here is, to their hypocritical worship. He was abhorred by their grain offerings and by their festivals. Look at verse 13 again. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. 
Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Though the people they'd been bringing uh, grain offerings as an act of worship, according to Leviticus 2, God says, stop, stop bringing them. They're worthless. They mean nothing. Even the incense that he had told them to, to bring and to burn before him in Exodus 30, he, he says, it's a foul stench in my nostrils. It's like God saying here, ah, oh, ah. Oh. And all the time of gathering for worship, gathering together, God looks at those things and things which God himself, the, the Sabbath, Passover, the various feasts, things that he had wanted them to do. He looks at them and says, they become like, like sin fests. They're iniquitous assemblies before me. Notice the increase in the emotional intensity in verse 14. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God isn't just expressing disapproval here. He's, that, that term I hate is literally my soul hates. God's saying down to the depth of my being, I, I disgust, I despise, I detest those celebrations. These times of worship didn't bring God joy or pleasure, but instead they had become a burden. It's like, oh, here they go again. This response is stunning. This is strong language. God's emotion is coming out strong here. These are intense statements that he's making, are they not? No words could be more devastating to their hearers if they cared. Yet God's disgust with their hypocritical worship. It did not stop with, with being sickened by their animal sacrifices. It didn't stop with being abhorred by their grain offerings and their festivals. No, thirdly, he was even unmoved by their prayer. Look at verse 15. So when you spread your, out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. God describes here the picture of one who is offering out prayer, arms spread, palms open up as an expression of, of submission, of emptiness, of need. But God declares that when you do that, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. I'm going to look away. I'm going to ignore you. It's like God saying, talk to the hand. God refused even to look. God then says, despite the fact that the people were offering prayer continuously, it says here, your multiplied prayers. Again, it was, this was a continuous thing going on. These weren't, God wasn't angry because there was only once in a while. No, they were, they were often coming to God offering prayer. But God's consistent and sobering response is this. I'm not listening. What could be more crushing? What could be more crushing than to come to pray and forgot to know that God would say, I, I, I'm not listening to these. These three responses from God are, they are troubling. They're disturbing. They're unsettling. Can you sense the intense emotion being conveyed here? He hated their gatherings. He was burdened by them. He loathed their animal sacrifices. He turned away from them when they prayed. What has brought on such a strong, visceral reaction from God? Is he repudiating? Is he eliminating the sacrificial system? Is he saying, you know, it's really the system I've set up. It's just not working. No, not at all. The reason for God's display of severe disgust was the worship that was being given, the manner in which they were carrying out what God had called them to do. And what was it? What was it that triggered this response? How do we see it was hypocritical worship? Well, it's that very last phrase given at the end of verse 15. He says there, your hands are covered with blood. And what did he mean by that? Well, 
Well, if you remember, in the Old Testament, when you would bring a sacrifice to God, you would slit the animal's throat. Blood would be spilled out everywhere. I, I remember seeing that being raised uh, on a farm where we would butcher cattle. And that was the first thing you did after you shot the cow in the head. You would, sorry about this, you would sever. <laughs> I just realized some people are kind of, <laughs> that's gross. Well, you know, this is what would happen when you'd bring a sacrifice. You'd slit the throat. Blood would be everywhere. So the blood would be all over the the worshippers' hands. It would be dripping from their hands, from their arms. And the picture is given, you know, after they would offer the sacrifice, they would lift their hands to God. Again, blood coming down off of their hands, dripping onto the ground. But when God looked down at that sacrifice, at that worshiper, he did not see animal blood falling to the ground. What he saw was human blood. It was the human blood of violence and oppression. The word used there for blood is different. It's a word for bloodshed. It's not the word that is normally used for for blood, animal blood. What God saw was that the worshipers were engaged in a life filled with sinful cruelty to their neighbors. Isaiah mentions this in several places throughout the book of Isaiah. Chapter 116 and 17, they oppressed the widow and the orphan. 5-7, they carried out injustice and bloodshed. 5-23, they tolerated bribery and injustice. In 10, 1 and 2, they deprive the needy, they rob the poor. In Isaiah 59, he summarizes all this when he says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with impurity. Your lips have spoken falsehood, your tongues mutter wickedness. You see, God's disgust with their worship lay in the fact that while these people were feigning a fulfillment of the greatest commandment in Scripture to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, at the very same time, they were butchering the second greatest commandment, which was to love your neighbor as yourself. Just like the Apostle John said in 1 John 4.20. Eric talked about this just a few minutes ago. John said in 1 John 4.20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Right? Our horizontal relationships are directly connected to the vertical one. God isn't interested in rote external expressions of religion. These people were committing a great hypocrisy by coming to God and offering worship while at the same time they were hating their brother, oppressing the poor, tolerating injustice, not caring for the needy. Their hearts were far from loving others and their worship was not authentic again all the externals were there they followed the prescribed laws but god did not have their heart and that's what he wanted was their heart these were being to be a means in order to have the heart isaiah noted this later in twenty nine thirteen when he said their lips they honor me but their hearts are far from me jesus referred to this later regarding the pharisees Worship from the heart has always been God's desire. Worship from the heart as expressed by a holy life. We see that all throughout the Old Testament. Let me read to you a few passages from the Old Testament which communicate that. Deuteronomy 10:12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? First Samuel fifteen twenty two, and Samuel speaking to Saul. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. 
Hosea 6, 6, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Knowledge there again, that intimate relationship. Listen to Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that they had a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Do you hear in these passages God's yearning, his yearning for those who would worship him from the heart? The people that he's addressing here in Isaiah failed to realize that worship is more than an event. It is a lifestyle. That is what God's after. God wants righteousness, not religion. He wants what's real, not ritual. What we should learn from God's extreme reaction in Isaiah 1, 10 to 15 is that you need to recognize God's attitude towards hypocritical worship. Any who would bring service to God while at the same time harboring a sinful lifestyle brings God's loathing. He's abhorred by that. He, he brings a deaf ear to their prayers. One preacher said, I, I believe God would rather have five minutes of true worship than five hours, five hours of phony religion. More like 500 hours. He doesn't want any. He'd rather have the five seconds. Just give me that. But there are many, many people across this land, perhaps even here in this room, who are living and going through the motions just like these 7th century Jews. They do what they think God expects of them by coming to church, by by singing with fervor in the congregation, by by doing many different things, attending prayer meetings and Bible studies, perhaps even going to small group. Perhaps they even read their Bible on occasion. But if your life outside of these times of, of worship is one that is described by wickedness, if you show no love for others, if you're not seeking to help those in need, if you take advantage of others as a lifestyle, if your heart is empty of true love for God, then this passage says that worship that you're offering is, is worthless. It is meaningless. It is loathsome. It's like the pompous deacon uh, who was teaching Sunday school to a group of boys, and he, he was endeavoring to impress upon the class the importance of living the Christian life, and he asks, why do people call me a Christian? And after a, a moment of silence, uh, one boy answered, well, maybe it's because they don't know you. Ouch. (laughs) So beware all you Sunday school teachers out there. Kids are watching. Well, if coming here Sunday morning is, is only a ritual for you, then this passage is aimed right at you. God's attitude toward that form of worship is he hates it. He hates it. And though this text was primarily addressed to non-believers, to non-believing Jews at that time, and not to his children, believers need to take seriously the principles that we see in this passage. We need to be very careful about offering hypocritical worship to our God. Unless we think this was, you know, this is an Old Testament thing. Way back, you know, when they were, when they were offering these sacrifices. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there. Leave it at the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. How we treat others again, it's directly connected to our worship, just as it was in Isaiah one. And there are several times that I have been late to church or to a, a fellowship time because of a conflict that's occurred in my family. Something we've had to work out together, either, either with me, with, with my kids. Because I, I don't want my kids, 
And I don't want myself to get in the habit of thinking I can get into this, this out, you know, this fight with my family and then we can come and, and worship God together. Don't do that. Some of you maybe perhaps should have been a little bit late here this morning because of a conflict that could have occurred this morning or, or yesterday. Or maybe you're in the midst of an ongoing conflict with somebody else. You know, Jesus would have you go and make that right first. Then, then your worship is genuine. Be careful here. Keep your slate clean. Again, remember, worship is more than an event. It is a lifestyle. So again, the, the first step toward authentic worship is you need to recognize God's attitude toward hypocritical worship. The second step is, you know, what, what if we've been caught up in that? What if I've been caught up in a lifestyle of hypocritical worship? Well, the second step toward a life of authentic worship is given in verses 16 through 18, and that is to repent from hypocritical worship. Repent from hypocritical worship. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deed from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together says the Lord, though your skins, sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And here we see in these verses that the, the call to repentance is, is given in, with nine commands followed by a promise. And those first four commands deal with the fleeing of the sinful behavior. The next five commands deal with the pursuing of righteous behavior. Anyone guilty of hypocritical worship was first to, to cleanse, to wash themselves. And this idea isn't saying that uh, someone is able to, to, uh, to, on their own, bring themselves to a right standing, a righteous standing before God. It, it's simply God's saying here that just remove this sinful behavior by putting away those evil deeds. Wash them from you. Stop doing them. And he gets more emphatic in the next couple of statements where he says, cease to do evil. Stop sinning. They're to exhibit a dramatic change in lifestyle. It's almost like a stop sign is being put up in front of them here. And not only are hypocritical worshipers called to stop pursuing their evil behavior, but then in verse 17, they're called to pursue a righteous behavior. Do the opposite. Verse 17, he says, instead of doing evil, learn to do good as a lifestyle. Not good acts once in a while, but as a way of living. God then calls for a stop to the social injustice and oppression of the poor and the helpless that they had been doing. They were now to seek justice. They were now to reprove the ruthless. Any who were preying upon the widow or upon the poor or the needy or the fatherless, they were to be dealt with. One who is truly repentant would not allow that injustice or oppression to continue. They would help the orphan. They would plead for the widow. And these last two injunctions that he gives, they strike at the heart of one who would offer true worship because he or she would care about what God cares about. He or she would do and care for and show love toward those especially who are in need, who, who can't repay. Brothers and sisters, you would do well to evaluate your own level of worship in this way. How well do you show love to others who cannot repay? The most telling sign of love in any society or any person is to how they treat those who they won't get any benefit from, no advantage from, no position, nothing in return, simply just because they're trying to help. Remember the test of genuine Worship that James gives in James one twenty seven when he says their pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, our, fa- our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. 
How are you showing this in your life? This is a mark of authentic worship. Take stock of where you're at now. We've, we've looked at some pretty strong statements made by the Lord regarding hypocritical worship. Are you guilty of hypocritical worship? Is your relationship with God marked mainly by outward duty? Is it marked by that, that time with the Lord that you spend with him? It's really only ceremony, only ritual. And you know if it is. Dear friends, don't let this moment pass with asking yourself, am I a hypocritical worshiper? It reminds me of the words of Thomas Watson when he said, what good will it do a man when he is in hell and others think he has gone to heaven? Stop your external worship. Stop that external religion. Come to God broken, just like David did in Psalm 51, 16 and 17, when he said, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Come to God humbly. But this isn't the end of the story. Simply stopping the evil and turning to do good doesn't repair the damage that's been caused. Remember Isaiah 59 says, Your sins have caused a separation between you and your God. Even any who would seek to turn from their sin, there's still a breach between you and the Lord. This applies to any who are caught in the grip of hypocritical worship or any who would feign love for God by going through the motions of church while having no desire to worship him from the heart. This applies to any who are caught in a religious system that replaces external works instead of God's grace for salvation. Repentance is necessary, but it's not sufficient. There's something else that remains. What is it that all humanity requires? What is it that all of us need in order for that sin to be completely washed away from us? Well, he addresses it in verse 18. He offers a promise. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And remember here, We've been Isaiah's been using a kind of a courtroom scene. And, and here in this first line, he says, come, and let us reason together. That's courtroom language. What he's saying there is, let us debate our case in court. Let's settle our differences. And then God presents an amazing offer. Look at the settlement that he proposes here in verse 18. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And some take this passage as it's a future promise that all Israel will be saved, just as seen in the idea of will be, your sins will be white as snow, will be like wool. But the idea here in the original is more that they can become that. They can become white like snow. They can become like wool. The offer is conditional here. If you would repent, God says, I will forgive and I will wipe you clean. You will be clean from your sin. Forgiveness is never extended without true repentance. It's never extended without a desire to trust in the Lord. Peter mentions this in Acts 3.19 when he says, Repent therefore and return, that your sins may be wiped away. And that forgiveness is described poetically here as a, it's a cleansing. It's a purifying of one's soul from the colors of crimson blood guilt to the whiteness of purity. And what's so incredible about this promise that god gives or any who would repent and seek his forgiveness is that it comes right in the midst of this emotional powerful intense language this disgust that god communicates this tone of of abhorrence turns into a tone of compassion and grace 
Oh, friends, the, the healing balm of God's mercy is so amazing here. God who would be just so incredibly disgusted that would have a foul stench brought to his nostrils and then to offer forgiveness and mercy. That is his heart. If you've been caught in the trap of external religion, there is a way out. There is a way in which you can bring pleasure to God, a way in which you can please him, a way in which you can be forgiven to worship him from a pure heart. Isaiah 55, 7 says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And how is it that forgiveness can be forgiven? How is it that our sins can be washed away? Well, Isaiah clearly articulates that later in chapter 53 of the suffering servant, does he not? You recall these these words spoken about him. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. We know who this is. Right? This is our Lord Jesus. And only through God's suffering servant, Jesus Christ, can we be forgiven. Isaiah describes here a torturing that took place of his servant. Jesus was tortured, delivered up, and killed so that hypocritical worshipers like you and me could be forgiven. Before salvation, all the service that we rendered to Christ, it was disgusting, despicable, hypocritical worship. But Christ changed that. Christ changed that. God's message to Israel here in Isaiah 1 desperately needs to be sounded by us today to our world because there are millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people who are caught up and they're participating in an external religion, hoping that all the while they're earning God's favor while at the same time rejecting allegiance to him. This is this is pervasive in our world. Their entire religious systems based on this. So all you need to do is, is come in and do a few rituals, perform a few ceremonies, and God's happy. No, he's not. He's disgusted. He hates that. He wants the heart. He doesn't care about the externals if it's not coming from a heart that desires to please him. Yet there are millions and millions caught up in this. God wants not the outward deeds alone, but an inward motivation. Remember, any worship of God offered apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ really is hypocritical worship because it's rejecting the only means in which we can have a changed heart, the only means in which we can come to God with a clean heart. It is only through the flow of his crimson blood that our crimson sin can be washed away and made like wool, like snow. We need to hear this message in our own churches as well. There are many, many caught up in a idea of uh, hypocritically participating in the ceremonies of the church while at the same time harboring rebellion against God during the week. I chose that Frederick Douglass quote because that was such a, a graphic depiction of that. That was Isaiah 1 happening in this country. The message God delivered to the people of Judah some 2,700 years ago is no different than it is today. God desires authentic worship. That is what he wants. And it's a critical message to everyone, to every one of you here, no matter how long you've been coming to Calvary, no matter how long 
uh, that you've known the Lord, no matter how many sermons you've heard. And if you've been here, you know, 10 years, you'll hear probably over 500 sermons. That's if you just come Sunday morning. It doesn't matter. You too are in danger of external hypocritical worship. You too are in danger of becoming cold to his word. Does your heart and lifestyle during the week match up with what people see when you're with them here on Sundays? Well, so far we've looked at two steps toward a life of authentic worship. The first being, again, to recognize God's attitude toward hypocritical worship. The second being to repent from hypocritical worship. Well, the third step, which is implied in the text, is to pursue a life of authentic worship. Pursue a life of authentic worship. And to show that, we're going to look at two passages briefly in the New Testament, which I think really give us the blueprint of what authentic worship looks like. The first I've already referred to in John 4. So if you could turn there, John 4. It's the, of course, the story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan who Jesus was speaking with, and they got into a dialogue about uh, which temple, where should we go to, to worship, which one was it the one that Samaritans built, is it the one in Jerusalem? Well, Jesus here tells her exactly what God is looking for. Pick it up with me in John 4. We'll look at verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now here Jesus tells that the Father, again, he's actively seeking True worship. He's looking for them. His eyes are, are moving around, seeking, seeking those who would truly worship him. And then he then defines what that is. He defines here for us what a true worshiper is. It's one who worships God in spirit and in truth. And in spirit here has the idea of it's from the heart. It's heartfelt. It's genuine. It's from your soul. Again, any worship that we offer must not be external, but internal. It must come from within. It must be motivated by a desire to love and serve God. There can't be any ulterior motive, no harboring of a sinful lifestyle. It's based on a passion to know God. It's based on a desire to be satisfied in Him. God is to be the object of our affections. I think a a beautiful description of that, the heart of a true worshiper is given by David, Psalm 27, 4, where he says, There one thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. What was David's heart there? He said, one thing, God, one thing, one thing out of anything I could have. This is one thing I would want. Give it to me, please. One thing that I desire. Remember God's desire. He wants our heart. It's our soul. It's our very being to be enthralled and captivated with him. Not for what we get from him, but for who he is. John Piper said that worship is not a means to something else. Worship is an end. Again, remember David's words. One thing I'm seeking, God, one thing I want from you. And what was that? What was his singular desire? That I may dwell in your house all the days of my life. That's all I want. Now, why did he want to dwell there? Did he want to... Uh, grapes and fig leaves and just to kick back for the rest of his life and no hardship. No, he didn't say that at all. What was it? Why did he want to sit in the temple all the days of his life? Why did he want to be there? 
Because it says to behold the beauty of the Lord. That's all I want. That's all I want to do, God, is to sit and gaze at you. I want to adore you. That's all I want to do. That's the one thing I'm desiring. And I want to meditate upon you. When he says there to meditate in the temple, he wasn't talking about thinking about anything else but dwelling solely on God. That's what David's heart was. He wanted God. He wanted God. That's worshiping him in spirit. This is at the heart of authentic worship. It's a heart that says, I want you, God. I want you. I want to sit at your feet and gaze at you. That's all I want to do. Wasn't that the heart of Mary of Bethany several weeks ago? We covered that in Luke where she just sat there and says, I just want to listen. Oh, I just want to sit at his feet. doesn't matter what's going on in the kitchen. I don't care. I want to sit here. That's what David was saying. I want to do that forever. I want to gaze at your beauty. I just want to look upon you, God, and be in awe. Oh, may that be the cry of our hearts. One thing, God, this is all I want. But Jesus notes as well that worshiping him in spirit and also in truth. Our worship needs to be based upon what is true. Some believe that, you know, it's just important that you you pray, that you sing or or do things for God. But it, it doesn't matter. It's just that you do it. Well, that's that's not true. Our, our worship has to be based on what is true about him. Psalm 145, 18 says the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And that's why it's so important that you continually be immersing yourself in the word of God and in sermons and memorizing scripture and Bible studies, being around those who talk about scripture. Because that is the basis for our worship. It is we need to worship what's true about him. Not be like the Israelites when they made the golden calf. And they said, this is the God that delivered us. That wasn't the true God they were worshiping. And we saw God's response there. The big earthquake. You cannot be an authentic worshiper of God if you don't have a right understanding of him. And that understanding is only found in his self-revealing word. We can't make up stuff about him. Now, more insight into the nature of authentic worship is not only it's in spirit, in truth but turn to romans 12 where we see a, a, a another great picture of what it means to be an authentic worshiper romans 12 just the first two verses there paul gives us a, a picture of what it looks like to be an authentic worshiper what it looks like when, when we're in heaven, that's one thing, to gaze upon his beauty. What does it look like to be an authentic worshiper while here on earth? What is a lifestyle of authentic worship? Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And there's a lot of riches that we could mine out of this text, but I just wanted us to go here just to see the, the whole picture of what Paul is presenting here. Authentic worship is, is the giving our, of ourselves over. Be conformed to what God wants, not what we want. It's throwing ourselves up upon that altar on a daily, continual basis. 
Do you see how worship, it's, it's so much more. It's so beyond just attending a service. It's so beyond just going to a fellowship time. It's, it's even way beyond just daily devotionals. Authentic worship is, it's an ongoing, complete giving of ourselves over to God for His purposes, for His pleasures. It's dedicated, being dedicated to a life of holiness, to a life of sacrifice, that God will be honored and adored. Again, it's a lifestyle. It's not an event. It is a lifestyle that God's after. At its essence, authentic worship is honor and adoration directed to God that manifests itself in daily expressions of allegiance in every area of life. That's a mouthful, so I'll read it again. Authentic worship is honor and adoration directed to God that manifests itself in daily expressions of allegiance to Him in every area of life. An authentic worshiper will not fill his mind with impurity and gaze upon that which would tempt him. An authentic worshiper will work at their marriage, even if it's hard. An authentic worshiper will share the gospel and will, will praise and exalt God when given the opportunity. An authentic worshiper will work hard at their job, work hard at the home. They'll give God credit. An authentic worshiper will obey his or her parents joyfully. Authentic worshipers seek holiness, not pursue the world. Authentic worshipers don't seek refuge and comfort in drugs or sex or entertainment or food or alcohol or relationships or money or work. They seek refuge and comfort in God and God alone. Authentic worshipers readily forgive when wronged. Authentic worshipers look for ways to serve in the church. Authentic worshipers are resolved to be patient, to be compassionate, to be kind to others. Essentially, authentic worshipers take up their cross daily, deny themselves, and follow Christ. That is an authentic worshiper. In short, pursuing a life of authentic worship is is to pursue a life which in every moment asks this question, regardless of the cost. Here's the mark of an authentic worshiper asking this question in every circumstance. How can I glorify God right now? How can I glorify God right now? I've been praying this week that just reflecting on this, that God would make me such a man. And I have a long way to go, (laughs) a long way to go. How about you? Will you beg God to conform you into an authentic worshiper who desires him alone? Will you make it a habit to ask him in every circumstance, train your mind and heart to do this? Lord, how can I glorify you right now? Train yourself to do that on a continual basis. Remember, you're the living sacrifice, throwing yourself up upon that altar daily, moment by moment. How can I glorify God? How can I glorify you right now? Well, one such example is a Chinese Christian who felt compassion for his countrymen who had been taken to work as slaves in the South African gold mines some hundred years ago. The slaves were kept in appalling conditions. They were given little wages. They were isolated from the local population. But in order to share the gospel with these men, he sold himself into slavery to do it, to be with them, to share with them. He only survived five years in those harsh conditions, but it led 200 men to Christ in that time. That's authentic worship. Now, you don't have to go off somewhere as a missionary necessarily under harsh conditions. God may be calling some of you to that, but I bring his example up because it, it is an example that, Lord, may my daily walk, may your daily walk reflect that same kind of living 
sacrifice to God, a living sacrifice that will be pleasing to him. That is the heart of authentic worship. Remember, it is a lifestyle. It is not an event. Let's pray together. Lord, we are humbled by this text. It is, Lord, startling the your attitude towards hypocritical worship. And we see in that, Lord, just such a desire, strong desire for authentic worship, to be worshipped from the heart and spirit and truth, to be, Lord, worshipped to, to do whatever we can, Lord, to, to have a lifestyle that exhibits a joy in you, exhibits a desire to please you in all we do, that, that shows a desire to just to gaze at you, to sit at your feet and be in awe of who you are. Lord, may all of us long for that. May you impress upon our hearts that desire of David's, that one thing that he desired. God, make Calvary Bible Church a church full of authentic worshipers that would or be a light to a world that's full of those who would um, seek to please you only through external means, if not outright rejecting you. God, expose to us any areas of our life right now, even as your children, that um, just are areas that we have not been working at, that we have been ignoring or allowing to take place. Let us not worship you in a fashion that is hypocritical at all. We know that as we come to you and seek forgiveness, you you will forgive and readily readily accept and readily listen to us and thank you for that lord father may you be pleased with all that we have to offer you not only on sunday mornings god but each and every day may we ask you help us remind us lord to ask you how can we glorify you right now in jesus name amen